The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. Please stand for a reading from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Chad Middlebrooks. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and it is great to be with you. It's an honor to open the scriptures together with you this morning. If you're visiting with us, we are in a study in the Gospel of Luke. And a few weeks ago, we studied how Jesus calmed a raging storm, and his disciples that were on the boat with him said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And then two weeks ago, we saw how Herod was curious about who Jesus was as he was hearing all these reports, and he says, who is this man that I'm hearing so much about? And then last week, we saw Jesus ask the disciples this question, who do the crowds say that I am? And then he turns the question on to his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded and said, you are the Christ of God. And this morning, as we come to our text, we see that God the Father now weighs in onto this critical question as to the identity of Jesus Christ. So that's where we're headed this morning. So let's pray, and then we will dive into this text. Father, what we are about to do is pure foolishness if your spirit does not show up this morning and tend to your word. And so we plead with you that indeed you would speak to us, O Lord, that we might hear the beauty of your word, that it might transform us, it might change us, and that we might live differently in light of it. Father, would you come and do that now? We are desperate in need of changing. For we've forgotten even from last week the truth that we heard on our ears. 
So remind us yet again afresh of your deep and abiding love for your people through Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, this past week I took my boys to see Top Gun at the movie theater. And my wallet was reminded why it was the first time in about five years that I've been to a movie. But one of the fun parts about going to the movies in the theater is you get to see the previews. And the previews in and of themselves are kind of a a work of art because they take carefully crafted two hours or so of content and they condense it down to like two minutes of like intriguing, captivating art so that you want to go back and see that movie next. Well, here in Luke chapter 9, Luke records a preview, as it were, of a coming event. And this event, known as the Transfiguration, is a heavenly preview of what is to be achieved through the person of Jesus Christ. So to this point, Luke has been offering glimpses into the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And in this text, the Transfiguration provides Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples, a glimpse, just a glimpse into the glory of this kingdom. And this life-changing moment on this mountaintop reveals the kingdom by unveiling the glory and the radiance of Jesus Christ. You see in the back of your bulletin the three points by which we'll study this text this morning. First, we're going to see the remarkable revelation of the Son's glory. And then we'll see the reactionary response of Peter. And then finally, the decisive declaration of Jesus' identity. So Jesus has just told his disciples of the coming suffering and the death that he will incur at the hands of the chief priests and the elders. And he's just told his disciples what is involved if they're to follow him, the nature of that call, to die to self, cross-bearing would be involved. And so eight days later, we're told that Jesus and Peter, James, and John, they go up to the mountain to pray. And you see there in verse 29, we're told, and as he, he was praying, Jesus, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. In Mark's account of the transfiguration, Jesus' clothes were whiter than anyone could bleach them, he says. In this moment, the shining glory of God is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus' appearance changes, it morphs, as it were, into this glorified state where his power and his authority and royal majesty are momentarily visible to Peter, James, and John on this mountaintop. The glory is seen as a dazzling display of pure, bright white. Why is it so significant that Jesus is shining here in this moment on this mountain? Well, if you remember throughout scriptures, even starting before creation, that before the earth, when it was formless and void, God said, let there would be light. And then in 1 John chapter 1, we see that John says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And throughout the Old Testament, the presence of God is marked by unique brightness Remember the Exodus, the pillar of fire led God's people by night. Or when God allowed Moses to see just a glimpse of him as he hid him in the cleft and he saw him walk from his backside and Moses came down and his face was glowing so much so he had to put a veil on because of the radiance reflecting off of him of God's glory. The signature of God's presence is his radiance and his majesty visibly marked by brightness. So anytime this otherworldly brightness showed up, it meant that Yahweh was present. 
Now the prophet Daniel describing the vision of God writes in Daniel 7, he says, and I looked and thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and his hair on his head was white like wool. Here on this mountaintop, Jesus is being revealed for who he has always been and who he will always be. The radiance of God's glory. The writer of Hebrew affirms this in Hebrews 1. He says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In this moment, Christ's glory is being made manifest to these three disciples to behold. These men see Jesus, the ancient of days, in the flesh. The one who was spoken of in Revelation 1 and the vision that John was given on the island of Patmos. And you know that he must have connected these dots with that vision he got later with this, what was happening on the Mount of Transfiguration. Because he writes, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. In this moment of revealed glory, Jesus is not merely reflecting the Father's glory like the moon reflects the sun's light. He is the radiance of God's glory in himself. Notice that there are messengers as well that are present on this mountaintop. Verse 30, we're told that two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses, representing the law, and Elijah, representing the prophets, appear in glorious splendor along with Jesus. And both men had encountered God in his glory, Moses on Mount Sinai when he received the law, and then Elijah on Mount Horeb. And so, here they are on this mountaintop speaking with Jesus. But for what purpose? To reveal the superiority and the greater glory of Jesus. The law and the prophets is shorthand for all the scriptures. And so Jesus stands in the midst of the law and in the midst of the prophets, fulfilling all of them. Jesus is the greater Moses who fulfilled the law perfectly, but he's also the greater prophet to which every other prophet was pointing towards. And Peter, James, and John, they knew their Old Testament. And so this was a really big deal to see Jesus shining in the night in this way. Because they knew what Ezekiel described in Ezekiel chapter 8 when he said, Behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire. And above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. See, they had been with Jesus for over two years now, eating with him, having meals, listening to his teaching and gaining wisdom, watching him heal the sick, but they had never seen Jesus like this. God is pulling back the curtain, as it were, to reveal his glory fully through his son, Jesus Christ. And this experience that Peter, James, and John enjoy on this mountaintop, as unbelievable as it is, it's just a foretaste of the greater glory that they will experience in the resurrection of Christ. But likewise, this event is also a true foretaste of the greater glory that those of us who are in Christ will experience when he returns. So in the midst of this glorious revelation, there's this conversation between Elijah and Moses and Jesus. Did you catch the topic of that conversation? Jesus' departure going back down to Jerusalem to the cross. 
So Moses and Elijah, like the coach before the big game, are engaged in this divine pep talk, as it were, talking about Jesus' departure, his exodus, to go back down to Jerusalem, to go to the cross, where he could create greater liberation, not from the Egyptians or even from the Romans, but liberation from sin and death itself. And so what's being revealed in this discussion is that the center of glory is the cross of Jesus that liberates sinners unto glory. The Shekinah glory had to go down the mountain where he would be betrayed and ultimately put to death on a Roman cross in order to renew and rescue sinners. See, what we must recognize as followers of Christ is that the revealed glory of Christ is the only compelling hope that we have as Christians. G.I. Packer wrote, puts it this way, talking about the transfiguration. He says, the transformation that the divine human Lord underwent as he prayed was from one standpoint, a taste of things to come. It was a momentary transition from the concealing of his divine glory that marked his days on earth to the revealing of that glory when he returns and we see him as he is. It was a transition too from humanity as it is in us now to what it will be on resurrection day. Packer's indicating that Christ's transfiguration here should instill great hope and longing in the hearts of everyone who is united by faith to Jesus. But see, in order to live a life of self-denial and cross-bearing that shines the light on how glorious and grand God is, our hearts must be captivated by the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus. And this is what ultimately gripped Peter, James, and John as we see and evidenced in their later writings from this experience and how it impacted them. If you remember, John writes in John chapter one, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. We've seen it with our own eyes. And then Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, for we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard the voice from heaven, Peter says, for we were with him on that holy mountain. See, these men needed to witness the glory of Christ in order to know that he is the true son of God. And their lives were radically transformed as their eyes beheld the fullness of God's glory in Jesus. Like the disciples, if we're gonna experience this kind of change, we must behold the glory of Christ above everything else in our lives. Which begs the question for us this morning, is the Jesus that you worship is he big enough to overshadow everything else in your life? As we see in this text, this change that happens in Peter and James and John's life, it wasn't immediate. And this should give us great comfort and assurance as we look at our own journey of faith. Because we see next the reactionary response of Peter in verse 32. So they're awakened to this awesome sight here on this mountain. And Peter who often suffered from foot and mouth syndrome, he opens his mouth and he blurts out and he says, Jesus, Jesus, this is incredible. Can we just stay up here? Let's just build three tents. We'll build one for you and Elijah and Moses. It'll be great. 
Peter maybe was thinking about what Zechariah says in Zechariah 14. When the end of the age comes and the nations will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and they will continue the feast of booths. Maybe that's what Peter thought was going on in this moment as he's experiencing this. But even if that's the case, do you see that Peter interrupts this moment of glory to tell Jesus what needs to happen next? As if the God of the universe wouldn't have remembered the three tents if there were supposed to be three tents there. But see, Peter, his reaction reveals the desire of his heart in this moment. Peter was telling Jesus, let's just stay in the radiance of this glory here on this mountain. As if in essence to say, Jesus, quit talking about all that cross talk and going back down to Jerusalem. Let's just stay up here in peace and rest and the comfort of your presence. Peter had in mind what he wanted to happen, but he forgot what was required to happen in order for salvation and redemption to be accomplished. We've kind of entered vacation season as it's summer, and I don't know about you, but when I'm on vacation and I'm enjoying the beauty of God's creation, whether that's at the beach or at the lake or the mountains, and I'm enjoying fellowship with family or close friends, there's moments when I begin to grieve that the vacation's about to end. And I wanna just hold on to that moment because I know what's waiting when I go back home. Challenging relationships, the daily grind of home life and parenting and marriage, bills that are waiting to be paid, frustrating interactions at work. And so I wanna just hold on to that moment and Peter doesn't want to face the reality of what has to come next that he knows has to happen. Peter doesn't want glory to have to come through the cross. Can't we identify with Peter here though? Because as followers of Christ, don't we want to enjoy the glory on the mountaintop, not in the hardships and the struggles of daily life? Peter had what he thought were good intentions, but it was just a bad idea. See, in Jesus ultimately coming down the mountain, he was entering into the messiness and the brokenness of real lives where it's lived. The place where all those things that we hate about ourselves, where those things reside. The things that frustrate us most about our spouse or our children or our coworkers. The sins that haunt us that we can't sleep at night. The mask that we put on to cover our insecurities, our fears, our depression, our doubts. The ailing bodies that remind us every day that they're deteriorating. Addictions, whether from substance or technology or the addiction to be affirmed by others. Being misunderstood for our faith. All these things and more, Jesus was compelled to come down the mountain to go to the cross so that we could experience healing and renewal. And like Peter, who didn't know what he was saying, do we not often too interrupt Jesus from speaking into our lives? We interject as if we know better than he does what we need in any given moment. And what Peter should have done in this monumental moment here on this mountain was fall down in humility and worship of his king. Because when you grasp the magnitude of Christ's glory, the only right response is reverent, and humble worship of Jesus. 
See, we need to see that taking up the call to die to self and serve others in Christ's name necessitates that we come down off the mountain and enter into the daily life. Remember Elijah, when he encountered the Lord in 1 Kings 19, he's telling God as he's in the glory there and he says, they're killed all the prophets and they want me dead too. Remember what God says to him. He doesn't say, well, just hang out here with me. It'll be fine. He sends him right back to the people. See, we're not, the norm is not the mountaintop experience. That's not where daily life is lived. He calls us into the messy, into the mundane, into the confusion and even the often frustration of life, the brokenness of this world. And he's tasked us as his church to reflect the radiance and the majesty of his glory through the way that we compassionately love others, those who are marginalized, those who are lost, those who feel defeated and hopeless. And each of the gospel writers, it's interesting, they follow this story of the transfiguration with the story of the demon-possessed boy. Why? Well, maybe to show that until the day that we're united to Christ by sight in the new heavens and new earth, that each time of our interaction with God through Jesus in worship, that worship is meant to compel us, to empower us to carry out his mission. See, our hearts are to encounter the radiance and the glory of Jesus so that we shine that light out into the dark places where he calls us to go. Lastly, we see the decisive declaration of Jesus' identity in verses 34 through 36. So there's this cloud that descends upon the mountain and the disciples are terrified in this moment. And like the cloud, or the cloud like the brightness of light was a sign, it was a manifestation of the presence of God. Aaron, when he was speaking to the people in Exodus 16, we see the cloud of God's glory descend and the people see it. Or in Ezekiel 10, when Ezekiel sees the glory cloud fill the temple just before God's presence leaves the temple. And so Luke says in verse 35 that from within this cloud, a voice speaks. And the voice of God says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, when you're trying to get a good job, you want a good recommendation from others, right? That's why you don't put down your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or the former employer that fired you, right? You want somebody who has authority, who has respect, who has influence. Well, Jesus, the Son of God, gets the greatest recommendation and endorsement of anyone ever by the eternal Father in heaven. The Father declares that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the chosen one. He's the suffering servant who has come to free his people from their sins. He's the fulfillment of the one that Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So God is saying that Moses and Elijah, as glorious as they were and how God used them, they were mere previews to the coming attraction. Jesus Christ, who is the great and final king. He's the one that the Father delights in. These are the same words that God spoke at Jesus' baptism. And so the disciples hear this endorsement so that they might respond in reverent worship before this true king. And the Father commands the disciples to listen to Jesus and he commands each of us who are in Christ to listen as well this morning. 
to the one that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord God will raise up a prophet from among you like myself. Listen to him. So if we're, it's as if the father is saying to Peter who spoke before listening, Peter, stop trying to conform Jesus into the person you want him to be for you. But is this not what we're often guilty of as well? Of fashioning an image of Jesus to fit our agendas and our desires. All right, we want him to conform and accommodate to us rather than us bowing down to him. Now, when we're attempting to be rulers of our own lives, it's very difficult to listen to other voices. But God says, listen to my beloved son. Listen to him not as one among many other voices, but listen to him as the loudest and most influential, truthful voice in your life. See, if we desire to hear from God the Father, we must listen to Jesus Christ the Son because the Son reveals the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. So this means we're called to listen and obey Jesus as he now speaks through the power of his spirit that indwells our hearts. If the Father has endorsed the Son, then that means we can trust everything that the Son calls us to do. This includes the hard things, the difficult things that we don't quite understand why we're being asked to do them, the things that seem to go against rationale in this world, like things like loving your enemies, or dying to yourself so that others can benefit and advance at your own expense. Or taking the posture of humility rather than superiority and arrogance and pride. See, the father knows exactly where he's about to send his son, to the cross. And so he clearly and loudly, decisively declares his affection and his love for his son. And if the father decisively declares his love for the son and he sends him into suffering, this means any suffering that we are called to endure is not a reflection of the absence of the father's love. It's actually a sign of his presence of his love with us. And so how might we view our circumstances differently? If we listened to Jesus's word with the intent to follow it, because he's the chosen one with all knowledge and wisdom and authority. And what if we also received whatever God sends into our lives as providential gifts from a father who's not against us and trying to spite us, but a father who loves us and he's giving us exactly what we need in the moment that we need it? What would that look like? I think it would result in a heart that's not only changed, but consumed by the glory of God and making Christ known in our lives. This experience on the mountaintop dramatically changed Peter, James, and John. They were never the same afterwards. And I know some of us are probably thinking, well, yeah, of course. If I experienced that kind of revelation and I saw that conversation take place, I'd be changed too. And it's as if Peter anticipated that thought that we might have. Because Peter goes on in that same passage in 2 Peter 1, he says this. He says, we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which we do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in darkness. See, Peter's saying, if you want to experience the glory of God and hear God speak to you, 
You don't have to seek it or try to drum up this whole mountaintop experience like they were on this mountain. He says all you have to do is pick up the word of God and read it. Listen to God speak to you through it and believe it. The question is, is do we believe that this is greater than experiencing Jesus on a mountaintop? Peter says it is, and he would know. See, the way the world around us sees the glory of Christ is not when we're living from a place of comfort superiority on the mountaintop. If we are to listen and obey Jesus' call to take up our cross and to follow him, we're to go down the mountain into where real life is lived with real people, with real problems and real struggles, just like our Savior did with us. We are to engage with others for the purpose of helping them to see the glory of Christ as we share his gospel. And as promised, Jesus will one day return and he will ascend to the mountain and he will establish justice and he will reign in all of his glory with his people forevermore. But until that day, we are called to listen and heed and obey his word, to take the position of the low place so that his glory might radiate from our lives and others might see and taste of his goodness. See, the pathway to glory will not be what we expect. It's full of twists and turns and things we don't see coming. But one thing is sure, the pathway to glory is sure victory because it's already been secured. And we will experience on that day the unhindered glory of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. So let us live in light of that reality today until that becomes a reality in our lives. Let's pray. Father, you know our feeble and frail frame. You know that we often want to speak and interject and not listen. We are quick of tongue, but slow to hear your word that you have given to us. Would you, by your grace, allow us to listen more and to know that your spirit will take the words that you apply to our hearts that we might live out in a way that does reflect the glory of our Savior. And Father, when we fail, may we know we can quickly come in repentance. That it's not on us. We are jars of clay reflecting this treasure that is in us to show the surpassing greatness is of you, not of us. And so would you empower us to do that, embolden us even as we leave this place today, that we might reflect the goodness and the glory of our Savior so that others might taste and hear of this good news and be changed by it. Father, if you would do this, we would return thanks and give you praise and you glory. For we pray this in Christ's name, amen.